Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the episode, a quick trip to the lab, specifically at Laddle Archaeology Lab, run by a bunch of awesome women who are friends of the show. They do protein residue analysis, phytolith analysis, geoarchaeological analysis, dental polish analysis, and cataloging services. You got proteins? Plant bits? Sediment? Teeth? Do you have all of that and need it cataloged? They do all of those things for a reasonable price, offering bulk rates and a student discount. So if you have material you need analyzed, these ladies are really good at what they do. Support small businesses and good archaeology. Check out atlatlarchaeology.com for more. That's A-T-L-A-T-L archaeology.com. On with the show. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's almost over. Spooktober's almost over. But not yet. Not yet. Still got an hour to go. Um, this week, we're both afraid. Ah! I know. Uh, why are we afraid? Well, ask my therapist. But don't, because she respects confidentiality. Uh, our topic is fear itself. <laughs> Great. I'm afraid lost, I'll have to cut that lost out. lost you there. <laughs> so what is fear, really? What is fear, really? What happens in our bodies when we're afraid? What is fear? Stop laughing at me. <laughs> so what happens in our bodies when we're afraid? Why are we scared of certain things? And why do people like being scared of certain things or in general? And how can we see something as subjective and ephemeral as fear in the archaeological record? That's a lot. Let's start by doing what I usually do when I'm freaked out by something. Figure out the sciencey parts of it. So let's first tackle fear as the physical response that we've evolved to have to things that we perceive as threatening to our survival or well-being in some way. So physiologically, what is fear? This is from an article in Dialogues in Clinical Neuroscience. And listeners, I don't know if you can tell, but this is going to be a bit of a sciencey episode. There's definitely some archaeology coming up at the tail end, but we're going to science it out first. So from Dialogues in Clinical Neuroscience in 2002, the biology of fear and anxiety related behaviors. Quote, ethologists people who study feelings, define fear as a motivational state aroused by specific stimuli that give rise to defensive behavior or escape. Animals may learn to fear situations in which they have previously been exposed to pain or stress and subsequently show avoidance behavior when they re-encounter that situation. Young animals may show an innate fear reaction to sudden noise or disturbances in the environment, but rapidly become habituated to them. When they are used to a familiar environment, then a fear of novelty may develop. Anxiety is a generalized response to an unknown threat or internal conflict, been there, whereas fear is focused on known external danger. So I wanted to lay out that difference there because we're going to talk about things and responses and and kind of um, that encompass both anxiety and fear. But 
for the most part, we're, we're sticking to fear. So I'm going to quote here now from Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, the fear reaction starts in the brain and spreads through the body to make adjustments for the best defense or flight reaction. The fear response starts in a region of the brain called the amygdala. This almond-shaped set of nuclei in the temporal lobe of the brain, that's on the sides, just above your ears, you know, but inside, is dedicated to detecting the emotional salience of the stimuli, or how much something stands out to us. For example, the amygdala activates whenever we see a human face with an emotion. This reaction is more pronounced with anger and fear. A threat stimulus, such as the sight of a predator, triggers a fear response in the amygdala, which activates areas involved in preparation for motor functions involved in fight or flight. It also triggers release of stress hormones and sympathetic nervous system. This leads to bodily changes that prepare us to be more efficient in a dangerous situation. The brain becomes hyper-alert, pupils dilate, the bronchi, which are in your lungs, dilate, and breathing accelerates. Heart rate and blood pressure rise. Blood flow and streams of glucose to the skeletal muscles increase. Organs not vital in survival, such as the gastrointestinal system, slow down. A part of the brain, called the hippocampus, is closely connected with the amygdala. The hippocampus and prefrontal cortex help the brain interpret the perceived threat. They're involved in a higher level processing of context, and we'll spend a lot of time there, which helps a person know whether a perceived threat is real. And so when we talk about why people get a kick out of scary movies and haunted houses and roller coasters, in those instances, your brain on some level knows that those are relatively controlled circumstances. Back to Smithsonian. Most of the physical symptoms we experience when it comes to fear come from the changes in our cardiovascular system. Heart rate increases and blood vessels constrict. Your respiratory rate increases and adrenaline picks up. Your body is pushed into fight or flight mode and other organs can be affected, including the liver and pancreas. Since your body believes you must prepare for a fight or to run, your muscles tighten, even those at the base of your hair follicles, causing your hair to literally stand on end. Prolonged fear and anxiety often lead to chronic pain in your muscles for this reason. Fear even causes a metabolic response that affects things such as glucose levels, which can increase your risk of heart disease, kidney disease, vision problems, and more. Therefore, prolonged stress on the body from fear and anxiety can cause many other physical symptoms and affect your long-term health. The effects on your body can be severe if fear is extreme. In fact, it is possible to be scared to death, although, and I'm paraphrasing here, that's very rare and usually involves pre-existing conditions like heart troubles. So, end quote from Smithsonian. Another effect of the fear response, we get stinky. Humans can smell fear to some extent, and it also appears that fear can be communicated to other individuals through smell. Now, this study that I'm about to, to tell you about, Amber, specifically used men as scent creator participants because men have larger apocrine sweat glands. That's where that stinky fear sweat comes from. And they used women as sniffer participants because of, quote, their better sense of smell and higher sensitivity to emotional cues. End quote. So when we talk about men and women here, are we talking about s s women, like people who have been socialized as women? Yeah, as women. So these are people who self-identified as as women. So these were like cis people. Yes, yes. Okay. That was a better way I could have said that. Okay. So, and so the African sweat glands is that something that is factored into like 
male puberty? Is that something that like they get bigger, like those sweat glands get larger? Like, yeah, I, I think like, I, is that, is I that think it's a hormonal that, thing. It's related to hormones. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so the, the sense of smell thing in women, is that a hormonal thing? I don't know if it's hormonal. I do know that women just overall tend to have a better sense of smell than men. And I, I don't know why I'd like to know. I didn't look into it. It, it just sounds like talking about higher sensitivity emotional cues makes it sound like we're talking about both sex and gender. Right. Like, yeah. With regard to this. And to some extent, um, I, the study and other ones that I looked at that had to do with smell and sex slash gender, the studies did seem to conflate those things a little bit, um, yeah. which was not helpful, but, but good to, good to note going in. So this is from a report on a study, um, in, from inverse.com quote, some people may argue that their sweat smells perceptibly different when it's induced by stress rather than by heat or exercise can confirm I'm one of those people. Broadly speaking, this is true. The latter kind is made up of mostly benign fluids ew, from the eccrine gland, while stress sweat comprises fluids from the apocrine gland, which contains nutrients that feed stench emitting bacteria on your skin when you sweat. So where does the garlic go? <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> That's actually going to come up in a couple paragraphs. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> it goes to the garlic gland, which uh, just kind of I mean, spreads it a, around. I have an enlarged garlic gland. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, I guess it's Italian. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have marinara in our veins and garlic in our glands. But we're not vampires, I guess. In addition to sending an obvious signal to others that they should steer clear of you because you smell like B.O., researchers showed in PLOS One in 2013 that the smell of a woman's stress sweat tends to make the people smelling her judge her as less confident, less trustworthy, and incompetent. End quote from Inverse.com. And so now I'm going to discuss a study in 2012 published in the journal Psychological Science in which men watched a variety of videos, including scary ones, specifically The Shining, I believe. They watched some of the especially disturbing scenes from The Shining, with gauze pads in their armpits, and then women sniffed those pads while also interpreting videos and facial expressions. Science! I have a lot of comments, top to bottom here. Mm -hmm. T to B. Mm -hmm. It's problematic. Nose to tail. Because also, also, also. I, you've not seen The Shining. No, I have not. Of this I am aware. Um, but The Shining will is... I. Oh, we talked about this last year. Like, it's a very good movie made out of, like, blue source material. But, that like most of Stephen King's work, it is not as scary to people who aren't women. That's its own thing. But also, The Shining but, but isn't like, it's the not, only type of video that they watch. They okay. also watch other, like, scary or disturbing footage. Yeah, because it's mm -hmm. like, it is scary, but it's scary in the way that misogyny is scary all right well be that as it may the male volunteers only used scent-free shampoo conditioner and soap provided by the lab several days beforehand and kept a diet journal to avoid odorous foods such as garlic onion and asparagus so there's your there's the garlic point um, the study also used female respondents because of their better sense of smell and higher sensitivity to emotional cues. This is the same thing I quoted above. They're not also saying yeah. it. A first experiment involved 48 females who sniffed gauze that contained fear sweat from the horror film sessions, gauze that contained sweat from the slapstick comedy viewings, and control gauze that contained no sweat. 
A second experiment with 16 females focused on the fear, sweat, gauze, and control gauze, so no slapstick. Women volunteers ended up more likely to interpret ambiguous faces as fearful when they were smelling the fear sweat, but only in the case of ambiguous faces. They still interpreted somewhat happy or somewhat scared faces according to what they saw. So the the fear sweat tipped the balance of whether they were likely to see an ambiguous face as fearful or not, um, is, the, is the thrust of that study. More recently, in 2017, scientists showed in Nature, scientific reports, just how crucial the sense of smell is to understanding emotions. In their study on people with alexithmia, a psychological condition in which people have trouble processing emotions, they found that people with severe degrees of the condition had altered physiological responses to odors. The altered physiological responses, they process emotions differently. And so if smell triggers emotion, they would process that differently. But we're also, okay, so uh, uh, continuing with my comments. Um, This is a total of 64 females. If that, I don't know if the two, I don't know if the two study populations overlap. So it's a, it's a maximum of 64. Yes. Okay. Nice. No, it's a small Uh, sample size. but, But also we are irrespective of my views on whether The Shining is actually scary. Sure. Um, watching a movie and being like, ooh, is very different than... Than being actually scared. there's an intruder. Yeah. Or, like, seeing a cougar. Yeah, there are the lots woods. of issues with these studies. I'm certainly not contesting that. But what I found was interesting was that there is a different smell that we produce when we're stressed out. And that smell communicates that same emotion to other people. Did we actually get anybody stressed out or did we get them watching scary movies? They also, like, it wasn't do, just scary movies. Do, it was like stressful, like clips that were, were they, would stress were people they like, out. Were like, I'm now loading your credit score? Yeah, something like that. Like. Yeah. Grant okay. submitting swirly wheel, swirly <laughs> color wheel. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um May I say my one other thing before we cut to ads? Yes, please do. Okay. Yep. This is, it's. Also neat. We'll go into it a little bit in in a little while, but I just wanted to mention it here. Um, it's unique to humans because humans kind of uniquely have complex language, more so than other animals who do communicate. But um, we learn fear from spoken or written language. So we learn to be afraid of things. We might sort of receive suggestions that, for example, clowns are scary or something, you know, something that might not inherently come off as as scary or something to be feared, um, either when you're a child or when you're an adult. But you can learn to fear certain things by by being told or by reading about it. I just thought that was... Interesting. So while oh, yes, the dolphins. I'm afraid of dolphins. What are what are dolphins afraid of? Limitations, man. Let's um take a quick ad break and then be scared of more stuff. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Yeah. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. And so we've talked a little bit about how we're scared of things and how um, researchers have tried to like access that. Um, but why are we scared of things? What's the point? What's the point of being scared? Is it just survival instinct or is there something else baked into our little brains, little big, big round brains? So, <laughs> oh, you remember we have big round brains. Well, yeah. So folks will hear that next week. Yep. Remember the future. <laughs> so research shows that there's actually a very specific window in our development when we receive a kind of template of things for of four things to fear so this is true for chimps as well so it's reasonable to think that the evolutionary roots of this trait go back further than seven million years when our lineage split off from the one that chimps belong to also other animals show this tendency as well just not in the same way that we do so this is something that's probably so do we do we show it in the same way as chimps yeah it was very similar in chimps. Um, but the example that I'm thinking of is baby ducks, I think, or baby chicks were shown silhouettes of a hawk and of a goose. They had, and they they had, had to watch The Shining. They had to, they had to watch The Shining. Uh, no, they were shown silhouettes of a hawk and a goose, and they learned to fear the hawk one. I'm not explaining it very well, but anyway. I mean, yeah. As a small dog owner, also, you fear the hawk. Why not hawks. both? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, geese. As a small dog owner, I also am afraid of the geese. (laughs) An article in Developmental Review by Vanessa Lobieux and David Rackison suggests three basic pathways for fear acquisition during child development. Vanessa Lobieux has a lot of research out there on the acquisition of fear. So. Cool. Yeah. Pathway the first. General learning model. This includes learning what to be afraid of through direct experience, so like getting stung by a wasp at an early age, observation, seeing someone else's reaction to being stung by a wasp, or information transmission through language, being told what a wasp is and that it can sting and that the sting hurts. These were my examples. Um, I don't know what Vanessa Lobia would use as an example, but the wasp was pathway was the second. <laughs> Non-associative model. In this case, fear seems to be innate, and subjects polled in studies cannot remember a particular experience that made them afraid of, for example, thanks, Anna, deep water or high places. Sorry. Oh, the dogs are home. Hello. These fears may not have been learned, but can sometimes be unlearned through conditioning. We've been talking to my therapist. (laughs) Pathway the third. Prepared learning model. Sometimes an association of a situation or thing with fear is made more readily because we have received information that tells us we should fear it. This one comes along with evolutionary learning. For example, a rat learns to associate a certain smell with gastric distress and will avoid food or drink that gives off that smell. 
So their avoidance can be passed on to other rats and subsequent generations. So this last category of fear might be the most relevant for us in thinking about traditionally spooky, scary monsters and stories. See previous episodes of Spooktober. (laughs) If we're told that a character in a story is to be feared, we're more likely to have a fear response in anticipation of, or when actually encountering, that character. Maybe that's what makes horror movies so popular for people who enjoy feeling frightened. You know you're going to see something that will scare you, but you also know you're in a movie theater or in a theme park or some other controlled space, uh, your couch. Um, Your brain, under the surface, knows that you're actually very unlikely to be harmed. What kinds of things in the natural world, specifically animals, are the most scary? So a researcher named Jakob Pollock and his team recruited nearly 2,000 people online and asked them to rate how frightening and disgusting they found 25 creatures. Yeah, there was a fright axis and a disgust axis. So am I going to now read yes, them please, in please list. order of increasing disgust and fright? Yep. Okay, starting with Red Panda. That was the control animal. Because, come on, I'm not scared of you. No. Then we got cat. Mm -hmm. Then we got horse. I didn't take this survey. (laughs) How can you not? I don't know. Horses are scary. Sure. They're so big. They are big. But but are they disgusting? Weird. They aren't aren't disgusting. They're scary. I know, but they they might be up on the fear axis, but not up on the disgust axis. Dog. Mm -hmm. Bull. Mm-hmm. Fish. Yep. Snail. Yep. Lizard. Mm-hmm. Rooster. Pigeon. Mouse. Mm-hmm. Frog. Moth. Rat. Bat. Ant. Snake. Non-venomous. Wasp. Viper. Like the venomous. Snake, not the, yeah. Not the 90s not car. The do- Is it a dodge? Um, yeah, whatever. Spider. Also not the car. <laughs> um, tapeworm. For sure not a car. Maggot. Louse. Cockroach. Roundworm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm going to read a short quote from an article in the British Psychological Society. On this study. This is okay, this study. On specific. Yeah. This is the publication of this study. Yes. And they, and Jakob Pollock et al., um, <laughs> Say, quote, among the key findings is that spiders were unique in being both intensely fear and disgust inducing in equal measure. The researchers said this may be due to their mix of disgusting properties, including their quirky too many legs body plan, combined with the fact that they are omnipresent in our homes, often lurking in the hidden dark places and capable of fast, unpredictable movement, end quote. Is this, here's a callback to that time a few months ago when I stayed at Anna's house and then I refused to use one of the bathrooms because I just wanted to give the brown recluse some space. and Naomi were just like, you use that one. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Spider did not show its face after that first instance. Well, that we know of because we didn't go back in. I didn't see it and I used that bathroom. So in cases of things that are small and often not dangerous to us, apart from that brown recluse spider that used to live, may still live in Anna's bathroom, the disgust factor is what elicits fear. We're afraid of encountering something we find revolting. So another quote from that article. 
The researchers noted that similar to spiders, the parasitic creatures like tapeworm and roundworm were both highly disgust-inducing, even more so than the spider, while at the same time being rated as highly fear-inducing, even more than, say, the wasp or grass snake. Perhaps, as the researchers reasoned, this combined fear and disgust reaction to intestinal parasites has evolved because they affect us with microscopic microscopic larvae, meaning we rarely see them with our eyes, yet we are aware they are omnipresent. Once again, as with spiders, we cannot rely only on disgust and behavioral avoidance to protect us, so we must also fear unwanted physical contact. And also these specific microscopic animals can make us very sick. And so the maggot, the maggot, by contrast, may elicit less fear because it can be seen and avoided more easily. End quote. So have we always known that intestinal parasites make us sick? I don't know. I don't think so. Because because you can't if they just were because you can't see them. And if they and if they are omnipresent, then one would see them. In- but we know about them now. Like, for example, would someone 5,000 years ago who wouldn't be able to see parasitic so, things, would they know to be afraid this article, of them? When this article uses the word evolved, do we mean evolved? Mm. Perhaps not in the sense of a change to the genome, but maybe a change in perception. Over in like the past, ooh, several years. generations. Yeah, let's say two hundred years. That, yeah, I would say hundred years. Sure. If if you think about like hookworm, well, I'm just thinking about Van Van Leeuwenhoek and his microscope, which was like 1700s. So yeah, I was just thinking so it's like about, the upper limit. Yeah, and then the lower limit is like the mid 50s. Sure. Yeah, sure. That's the I time don't range. Know how much time there's been to like evolve. Mm. Here, but no, not in that sense um, of the word, no. And so it might not be a surprise at all, as we've mentioned a couple times, but fear can be instilled or conditioned into us. And this brings us to the truly sad and deeply unethical story of oh. little Albert. I'm sorry. I know this is upsetting. It's an upsetting story about a bad thing that happened to a small child. So if you'd rather not hear about it, go ahead and hit that 30 second jump button a few times. So this experiment occurred in the 1920s before psychological research had most or any of the ethical constraints that exist today. Two researchers, John Watson and Rosalie Rayner, selected an infant from a hospital. It's unclear whether the child's mother had given clear and understanding consent. Frankly, given the rest of this, I doubt it. They called the child Albert in their reports. That wasn't his real name. Before the experiment, Albert was given a battery of baseline emotional tests. The infant was exposed briefly and for the first time to a white rat, a rabbit, a dog, a monkey, masks, both with and without hair, cotton, wool, burning newspapers, and other stimuli. Albert showed no fear of any of these items during baseline tests, and he was, this started when he was about eight months old. For the experiment proper, by which point Albert was around 11 months old, he was put on a mattress on a table in the middle of a room. A white laboratory rat was placed near Albert, and he was allowed to play with it. At this point, Watson and Rayner made a loud sound behind Albert's back by striking a suspended steel bar with a hammer each time the baby touched the rat. Albert responded to the noise by crying and showing fear. After several such pairings of the two stimuli, Albert was presented with only the rat. 
Upon seeing the rat, Albert became very distressed, crying and crawling away. Apparently, the infant associated the white rat with the noise. The rat, which had originally been a neutral stimulus, had become a conditioned stimulus. In further experiments, little Albert seemed to generalize his response to the white rat. He became distressed at the sight of several other furry objects, such as a rabbit, a furry dog, and a sealskin coat, and even a Santa Claus mask with white cotton balls in the beard. So he started to associate white, soft, fluffy with there might be a big scary noise. The worst part of this is that the little guy was never deconditioned. He retained a fear of fluffy things, presumably into his adult life. So there's an example sort of the classic and and awful example of how fear can be created. My apologies for the bummer. Research ethics are really important. Now we can move on. So as we mentioned above, with horror movies and theme park events and other seasonal delights, some people seek out the feeling of fear or horror, which I'm interpreting as fear plus disgust. Does that make sense? On purpose. People look for this on purpose. They like it. Why? So this is from a 2018 piece in the conversation titled, Why is it fun to be frightened? Quote, Fun, scary experiences could serve as an in-the-moment recalibration of what registers as stressful and even provide a kind of confidence boost. After watching a scary movie or going through a haunted attraction, maybe everything else seems like no big deal in comparison. You rationally understand that the actors in a haunted house aren't real, but when you suspend your disbelief and allow yourself to become immersed in the experience, the fear certainly can feel real, as excuse me, as does the satisfaction and sense of accomplishment when you make it through. Movies like Halloween allow people to tackle the big existential fears we all have, like why bad things happen without reason, through the protective frame of entertainment. Is Halloween a scary movie? Have you seen it? Yeah. Okay, that's a scary one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Choosing soundtrack's great. Oh, okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter. I was just thinking about his music yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's about that time. Mm. Halloween carols. Choosing to do fun, scary activities may also serve as a way to practice being scared, building greater self-knowledge and resilience, similar to rough and tumble play. It's an opportunity to engage with fear on your own terms in environments where you can push your boundaries safely. Because you're not in real danger and thus not occupied with survival, you can choose to observe your reactions and how your body changes, gaining greater insight to yourself, end quote. Also, if you have a certain kind of brain chemistry, you're more likely to enjoy a scare more than other people. David Zald, a researcher in neuroscience, has shown that our brain's dopamine response plays a key role in whether we get a thrill out of temporary fear. Basically, some people's brain lack what Zald describes as breaks on the dopamine release and reuptake in the brain. This means that some people get a much bigger pleasure hit in response to fear, so they're more likely to really enjoy thrilling, scary, and risky situations, while others, not so much. No, thank you. So how do monsters and Halloween haunts play into all of this? Well, um, Allegra Ringo, uh, writing for The Atlantic, says, quote, Each culture has its own superhero monsters. The Chupacabra, South America... The Loch Ness Monster, the yokai, which we talked about last week, um, Alps, the German nightmare creatures, 
Um, but they all have a number of characteristics in common. Monsters are defying general laws of nature in some way. They've either returned from the afterlife, such as ghosts, demons, or spirits, or they're some kind of non-human or semi-human creature. This speaks to the fact that things that violate the laws of nature are terrifying. And really anything that doesn't make sense or causes of some sort of dissonance, whether it's cognitive or aesthetic, is going to be scary. Like axe-wielding animals, masked faces, contorted bodies. Another shared characteristic of monsters across the globe is their blurred relationship with death and the body. Humans are obsessed with death. We simply have a hard time wrapping our mind around what happens when we die. This contemplation has led to some of the most famous monsters, with each culture creating their own version of the living dead, whether it's zombies, vampires, reanimated and reconstructed corpses, or ghosts. We want to imagine a life that goes on after we die. Or better yet, figure out a way to live forever. Again, though, that would violate the laws of nature and is therefore terrifying. So while the compositions and names of the monsters are different, the motivations and inspirations behind their constructions appear across, across the globe. End quote. I thought that was very well described. Just sort of the, the things yeah. that sort of break our brain become monstrous. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take one more quick ad break and then we'll be back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. And we are back. And we're looking at the archaeological record for instances where we can see people reacting to fear. Um, so I'm going to pull from an article by M.M. Owen in Eon. Quote, horror is what anthropologists call biocultural. It's about fears we carry because we are primates with a certain evolved biology. The corruption of the flesh, the loss of our offspring, is also about fears unique to our sociocultural moment. Horror has always been with us. Prehistoric cave paintings are rife with the animal-human hybrids that remain a motif of horror to this day. Every folktale tradition on Earth contains tales of malevolent creatures, petrifying ghosts, and graphic violence. The classics are frequently horrifying. In Homer's Odyssey, when the Cyclops encounters Odysseus's men, the monster eats them, entrails flesh and the marrowy bones alike. Yeah. And so in the archaeological record, just I just wanted to kind of briefly think about examples of things that suggest fears. And so and we, we've we've mentioned this quite a few times, but 
the Lamash to amulets, right? Fear of, of losing a child or having your child hurt or sick. So protective amulets, things like buried offerings, things that are meant to keep spaces safe and, and also one, one specific person protected. And, and these are all, if you think about it, they're all reactions to fears, fears of disease, fear of, of harm in some way. So any, Anywhere that we see material evidence of steps taken towards protection, we can infer that there was some kind of personal fear or group anxiety. And so there's plenty of plenty of examples of that in things that we've talked about in Spooktober's past. And I think even some um, Spooktober-related bonus episodes, the one that I did about witches and the witch bottles and, and things like that, that are meant to ward off witchcraft, uh, those kinds of things we see in the in the archaeological record. Um, and then finally, there's another example where we can see architecture change as a response to an event that provoked fear. Um, and so this is from a 2020 article by Tamara Walter entitled The Architecture of Fear, San Saba's Lasting Impact on Spanish Colonial Mission Construction as Exemplified at Mission San Lorenzo in Real County, Texas. The destruction, the destruction of Mission San Saba in 1757 by the Comanche and their allies marked a shift in the Texas mission system. The attack and subsequent deaths of several soldiers and two priests foreshadowed the beginning of the end of the missionary enterprise in Spanish Texas. These events induced fear across the frontier and resulted in policy changes and enhanced defenses at colonial settlements. So Mission San Lorenzo... Uh, from 1762 to 1769, for example, uh, was built after the attack, and the lessons learned from San Saba's tragic ending are manifested in San Lorenzo's architecture and layout. Recent excavations at San Lorenzo defined several building features that reflect a hybridization of Presidio and Mission architecture with an emphasis on defensive features. Significantly, these hybrid elements can be seen in other regions such as California, where numerous missions were established after the Franciscans withdrew from Texas. So this that's, that's the end of the, the quote. Of the Sorry. Quote? Yep. Okay. Um, so this isn't an example of fear of the supernatural. It's a very real fear of violence as the direct result of colonial oppression and like a resistance to a co colonial oppression. And it resulted in a systemic change to how the Spanish military and missionary groups did things. So their protections weren't amulets or witch bottles, but thick walls and cannon emplacements. So I think that's something that's valuable to think about here is the Spanish military and mission establishment had power. They were, they, they had, um, they had military strength, they had money, they had resources, and they were an invasive and colonizing force. Mm -hmm. They had power. When people are concerned about death of infants or concerned about bad luck befalling them or mm -hmm. it was like falling prey to illness, they don't have power. So I think it's really interesting to to see this as an example of fear of like the the things that people are using amulets and stuff again like they're real fears like they're afraid of real things right um, and it's just they don't have yeah they're like resorting to these things that are the the best that they can do and something that they don't have like agency or power or can maybe like have the upper hand in something they don't have agency in those cases Spanish here. Yeah, it's there are very very different circumstances in which 
fear is the response. And I think that that's really interesting. And I think the ubiquity of things that we see that are responses to fears or anxieties or imbalances of power and fear of losing power again in this particular case, you know, shoring up your wall so you don't lose power again, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'd be interested to see um, additional evidence in how this is characterized as fear and not setback. Well, not like disadvantageous. I suppose because like it's, Because is the military afraid or is it inconvenienced? And sort of like, and so sort of thinking about the experience of people on the ground versus the entity. The establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would imagine that the individuals who are stationed at that particular outpost would have felt fear. But that's speculative, of course. I would also imagine that, that the establishment would not care. In as much as the establishment isn't really a person, does the no, establishment like, no. like no, the, the establishment like no? But it's a system, and it makes decisions that preserve the system and like right. But the does the system have emotions like fear? The system can be responsive to okay. emotions and and can I see and, and can be the extension of sentiments. But I, if it, I is, suspect that it's an extension of of practicality, and in this case, yeah. and yeah. But yeah, the individuals themselves, the soldiers and the the missionaries, I imagine it was an uncertain time for them. Yeah. That's well, it. that is that is it for Spooktober, everybody. Almost. Anyway, uh, next week's episode is going to be the recording from our live show, which is a really fun time. Thank you, everyone who came out to, to yeah. hang with us. We had a great time. Uh, and it is slightly spooktober in nature, yeah. but... A little, little bit. But after that, we're back to our regular non-themed content. And you can find that content on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and anywhere else you like to listen. And you can find us over on social media. Over, over there on social media. <laughs> over there. Um, on Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, you can add us at The Dirt Pod. And find all of that, plus merch and back episodes and more, at thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.